The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is a great honor to welcome Dr. Oren Hesterman. Dr. Hesterman is a national leader in sustainable agriculture and food systems. He has been a program director for food systems at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. He helped establish the Michigan State Food Policy Council. He has been a professor of agronomy. He is based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And what I want our listeners to know about you, Dr. Hesterman, is that you were also an organic alfalfa sprout farmer and you delivered those sprouts in a 1953 GMC pickup, which still runs today. Welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Not only does it run, it runs really well, and I still use it when I need to pull straw for my garden. That just goes to show that we really should take care and pay attention to the things of our past, or from our history. I wanted you to be my guest today because I think that your new book, Fair Food, Growing a Healthy, Sustainable Food System for All, is a terrific book for our times. We are looking at the 2012 Farm Bill right now. We're in discussion with that. We are looking at the ravages of a food system that is broken. And you provide us with a very easy-to-read, three-part primer, if you will, outlining what's broken about the food system, how we can go about to change it, or the principles of fixing or redesigning our food system, and then helping us move from consumers to engage citizens. So let me start by asking you, who did you write this book for? You know, I was asked that by my publisher when I went and met with them and to see if, if they were interested in publishing the book. And I, and I said, you know, I, I don't have a single audience that I'm writing it for, but I know I'm writing it for people, for example, who have read Omnivore's Dilemma and who want to do something about it. They're tired of only being presented with the problems and the challenges. They want to do something. They're ready to get engaged. So I wrote it for people, whether they have two hours a week to shift how the decisions they make in their home and their community or whether they are passionate and full-time into this movement or whether, whether they're policymakers. So I also wrote it for those people who are engaged in public policy in the food system and in agriculture to help present a different view of how we can adjust our institutional practices and our public policies. I also, Melinda, wrote this book for the emerging generation of food systems activists and advocates. Those young people who in the thousands are picking up this issue as almost like the issue of their generation. I see it happening everywhere I go in the country. And I don't want the 40 years that I've spent since I was their age working on this issue to be a secret. I want to expose what I've learned, the insights that have come to me, and be able to, for people to use that as a resource in the field to move the movement forward. 
I love that you're based in agronomy and science, and so you really are a biologist with expertise in soil science. And so from that perspective, can you define for me what a food system means to you? When I, Melinda, think of a food system, I think of the system everything from preparing the soil and making decisions about what to plant where and how and when and how to nurture that crop and harvest it, but all the way to the point where it's going to the ultimate consumer, the ultimate eater of the food that's grown, and even what goes into our waste stream from there. But you're right. I really have approached my food systems work from the perspective of a agronomist, a biologist, kind of an ecologist, realizing that we need to shift things on a biological level. But I also really started looking at this issue in a new way when about 25 years ago, having been diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, I had such a severe flare-up of this disease that my digestive system stopped working. And I was faced in the hospital with the doc saying that if this inflammation didn't cool down, the only option was surgery removing my colon. So I'm, I'm lying there faced with not having a colon the rest of my life. And then a day later, the first time the doctor figured that I could eat again, they present me with the tray of roast beef, mashed potatoes, and some huge piece of white flour and sugar cake. Mm. And I looked at this and I said, I know this is not the food I need for my body to get healthy. Luckily, I was able to access healthier food. I called a friend of mine and asked her, would you please come save my life this week? And I asked her to, to make me some food that I knew could keep me and get me healthy again. And as I was lying in there in the hospital, I realized both how fortunate I was that I had the knowledge of how I needed to feed myself to get myself healthy. But I also had the access. I could find what I needed. I could afford what I needed. And I also thought about all of those people who don't have the knowledge and education, or if they do, they don't have the access. Mm -hmm. And so I really came to become engaged in food systems work in a different way and a expanded way from what how an agronomist would think based on that personal experience. Well, I think that it's wonderful that you share that personal experience with us because as a dietitian, I so much can relate to food as medicine. And wouldn't you think that hospitals would should or would be the, the primary source of truly healthful food? And even after all these years, we still need to find ways to fix the institutional food system, which you do get into in this book. But I don't want to jump ahead. I want to go back and ask you just a couple of points. In, in your first part of the book where you talk about the dysfunctional food system that we have today or the broken food system, you describe an experience that you had that I also had. You were driving also north from Des Moines, and I was driving north from Des Moines. And I remember all I saw were fields and fields, miles and miles of corn and soybeans, and an occasional stench from a hog confinement operation. And as an agronomist, I know that this deeply touches you because in a biological system, you know this doesn't work. I looked at it from a dietitian's perspective, and I thought, oh, gosh, it's like water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. There's nothing here to eat. And then you describe in your book the very small percentage of corn that's actually grown for human consumption, 
versus the feed that's used in livestock and in making and in, in making ethanol. So talk to me a little bit about the food system as you see it today. Highlight some of those broken pieces, and then let's get into how we're going to fix it. You know, as I, Melinda, spoke with several farmers who I've known over the years as I was writing this book, and from my own experience working as an agronomist and doing research with crop rotations and different types of cropping systems, deeply understanding the importance of diversity, of agronomic diversity in our system for health of the soil, for health of our plants, and as you point out, for health of our nutrition. So one of the principles that I think that we need to reinstate in our system is a principle of diversity. So while I'm driving through these endless fields of corn and soybeans in Iowa, coming across Richard and Sharon Thompson's farm in Boone, Iowa, was like an oasis Mm -hmm. where I found a farmer in the midst of all that who had made a real commitment to creating a much more diverse system, more diverse in terms of the crops he was growing, more diverse in terms of the types of uh, tillage he was using. And I have nothing against using some of our great bounty to to feed animals. Mm -hmm. That can be part of a system as well. And what he showed me with his system was how by integrating the animals into the system of corn and soybeans and small grains, he actually was producing a system where the waste from one part of the farm was used as a resource for another part of the farm. And it made perfect sense to me. So sometimes when I think about our broken food system, it's less about it's less about the what we actually see in terms of corn or soybean production and whether it's for animals or for human consumption, but just the how off balance we are, how much of our system has really evolved towards these huge monoculture fields of a single or maybe just two crops and no livestock to be seen and such a small percentage of our system that's actually integrating more crop rotation and animals into the system and that part of our redesign needs to be a reintegration of more pieces of the system. Well, and I love the way you describe how we got here. Because it's very difficult to understand, I think, some of the historical pieces that got us to where we are today. And it makes perfect sense that, you know, from an economic standpoint, specialization, concentration, globalization, from an economic standpoint, to produce the most food at the lowest cost, I mean, who could argue with that? And you bring this to bear. And I, I think it's so important for us to see that. And then you say, but you know, farms are not just economic systems. They're also biological systems. Right. So it's really important for us not to just consider our farm system as as sort of our farm fields as another factory floor where Mm -hmm. we're trying to control everything for maximum output. We really have to understand it as a biological system because that's what we are going to rely on in future generations to feed ourselves, the biology of this system. So, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, many more considerations that we have to make in this food system when we think about what kind of future we want to create than solely the most efficient economics. I also uh, believe and, and write in the book that the system we have today is a natural outgrowth of the policies and the objectives we had for a food system 70 or 80 years ago. 
but our context has changed. One thing I think about that you'll relate to as a nutritionist, Melinda, is that back before World War II, there was a real concern by our military that um, the recruits that were coming into the military were undernourished. They, there was not enough nourishment for our young people to really create the kind of physical bodies we needed in a strong and supple military. So part of our goal as a nation was to make sure there was enough food at a low enough cost so that everybody had enough calories to eat. Mm -hmm. Well, I now it's interesting when I talk about the context has changed, it's interesting to read reports now that recruiters for the armed services in our country are concerned because so many of the people who come in as recruits are not acceptable acceptable because they're obese. Right. And so we're we need to catch up. We need a food system that catches up with our current reality. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't done that yet on a large scale. What I'm pointing out and what what I'm I'm just pointing out what I have seen happen all over the country is that it is starting to redesign itself in small ways in communities all across the country. Well, you raise a great point, and that is one of discussing our food system in terms of national security. And with regard to diversity, one of the fixes that you point to is not only biological diversity in cropping systems and in livestock systems, but also individual communities of diversity. So going back to, say, the American Indian populations where we see diabetes at such high rates, and you speak about a a community of Native Americans that are going forward by looking back and regrouping around their Native food systems. And I thought that was a wonderful example of how we could move forward. Right. And it's, you know, by relying on the diversity of their culture the diversity of their diet, and the deep understanding and wisdom that they have. And, um, you know, this is the, the Tona Otum tribe in southern Arizona, mm-hmm. where traditionally the crops that they produced in the desert, including tepary beans and chola buds on cactus, were foods that were very good at controlling slow release of sugar into the blood. And that population never had a single case of diabetes while they were eating that more traditional diet. And since that diet was lost since World War II to a more traditional, I shouldn't even say traditional, to, a, to sort of a diet that uh, is in, was imposed upon them of uh, higher fat, higher sugar, higher, car- higher carbohydrate, um, diabetes has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. So now you have the, a nonprofit organization, Tona Otum Community Action, that's working to reintroduce some of the traditional crops that for hundreds or thousands of years were being eaten on that reservation and on that land. And it's starting to have a positive impact, starting to turn around okay. that, uh, that issue of diet-related disease. It's a wonderful story, one of many that you outline in your book. And listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Oren Hesterman. He is a national leader in sustainable agriculture and food systems and the author of a terrific new book called Fair Food, Growing a Healthy, Sustainable Food System for All. And I might add that Robert Kennedy Jr. has noticed your book and says it is a must-read, and you've got 
accolades from individuals all over the country, Alice Waters, governors, fellow foot soldiers in the fair food system. Let me ask you something. You focus a lot on fair food. I want you to describe for us what you see as fair food. When, when I think, Melinda, of a fair food system, I think of food in that system that is healthy, number one, good for our bodies. It's green, food that's grown in an environmentally responsible way. Fair means nobody in that system is getting exploited, and it's affordable. So everybody has access to that food and can afford it. And I know this is, these are four of the attributes that we developed when I was at Kellogg Foundation, healthy, green, fair, and affordable food. So that's, that's what I mean when I think of a fair food system. It's not only about fairness of wages and fairness of working conditions, but that's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. It's also about fairness in terms of ecological integrity, in terms of diversity, and uh, in terms of equity. Would you like to describe your trip to Immokalee, Florida? Like you, I, I also visited that community and was appalled by what I saw as injustice. And on the one hand, I hear, going back to that economics piece, I hear people singing the praises of cheap tomatoes and how we want them 12 months a year. And then I visited Immokalee, Florida, and saw that I didn't want to purchase those tomatoes for reasons of injustice. And you, too, took a trip to Immokalee. Tell me what you saw. Right, I did. And it, it really had an impression on me, you know, driving from, from Miami through the Everglades and, you know, from very sort of posh and high-end homes and palm trees and manicured lawns. And you come into Immokalee and, you know, you've just driven through fields after field of tomatoes being grown and you come into Immokalee where most of the signs are in Spanish and we find our way to the office of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers where I met Lucas Benitez. At that time, you know, in his late 20s, had been in the United States as a teenager, came from Mexico to, to work on the, in the fields, but realized early on that his work wasn't about working in the fields, but working on behalf of the workers. And you know, he showed me around first the office, but then we took a walk around Immokalee, and he was telling me about some of the conditions that, um, explaining how they're near slavery-like conditions for some of the workers. They work very hard. Sometimes they don't get paid. They've had to do all kinds of actions with the growers to get paid fairly. But what really hit me the most is that at the end of our walk, he leads me into this large dirt parking lot where there's row after row of single wide trailers. I'm not even going to call them mobile homes because they're pretty old run down trailers. Mm-hmm. And he points to one of them and he says, so how many people do you think live there? And I said, I have no idea. He says, 14 men live in that trailer. Mm-hmm. And indeed, 14 mattresses on the floor with one little hot, you know, hot plate to cook on, 14 pairs of shoes out on the porch. And he says, uh, these men, if you look at how much they're charged, they pay $1,200 a month to live in that trailer. Mm-hmm. And what blew me away was that at that moment, I had a daughter going to college in New York City. And I know exactly what her apartment cost because I was paying her rent. Mm-hmm. And these 
workers in Immokalee, Florida, were paying more for their trailer than my daughter was paying for a Manhattan apartment. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so it really, really gave me a strong hit of some of the injustice, but at the same time, um, really gave me hope when when Lucas told me about the action they were taking. He says, you know, we've tried to get the growers to give us fairer wages and better working conditions and better living conditions, but we realize that the growers oftentimes are in the same bind as the workers, that their margins are very slim. So we decided to follow the trail of those tomatoes and found out that many of them end up in Taco Bell meals, on McDonald's sandwiches and Burger King hamburgers. So we went straight to the leadership of those companies and started working with them to get them to pay just a penny a pound more for tomatoes. And the thing that really opened my eyes was when he said, you know, one penny more a pound for tomatoes doesn't really change much about the economics of selling a hamburger at a McDonald's, but it almost doubles the wage of the tomato pickers. Exactly. And the good news is they've been successful, not only with those companies, but now with uh, with Whole Foods and with many of the growers in that area of, of Florida. And the wages have been significantly increased for these same workers that you know I met when I was visiting there several years ago. And what a brilliant approach to follow that tomato up the chain and and look at look at change from uh, where consumers can help join the fight for fair food along with the farm workers. Right. And it's why we need to take a food systems approach to this. And I keep saying that we cannot solve this problem by problem by problem. We have to understand this as a food system and think about how to redesign the system, how to create living and breathing examples of a different way of doing business in the food system that takes care of several issues at the same time, not just try to focus on one problem at a time. Yes, I totally agree with you. Looking at the industrial pieces and the policy pieces, the institutional pieces to see how we can we can look at the bigger picture, the full system. Now, you also tell a wonderful story about Fred Kirshenman's farm in North Dakota. I wanted to bring this point out because it's a policy piece, and it also goes back to agronomy. So you, you describe his crop rotations with, along with his neighbors, were very successful. He did sunflowers and wheat. And as long as his other neighbors were also growing sunflowers, he could withstand a little bit of loss from birds eating some of those sunflowers. But when his neighbors stopped growing sunflowers because of farm policy, that they would pay them more for growing the commodity crops, then he lost more of his sunflower crop. Right. I think when uh, when all the neighbors were growing the sunflowers, the blackbirds who feed on those sunflowers getting ready for their migration south in the fall, you know, their loss was about 8% of their crop, which economically they could all bear. And, you know, there was a good market for these sunflowers, uh, sunflower seeds. But once the farm bills of the 90s were in place and these farmers realized that they could lose some uh, potential benefit um, in farm programs if they didn't keep corn growing on those acreages, they gave up growing sunflowers. 
and Fred told me that the first couple of years he was he kept sunflowers in the rotation after all his neighbors stopped his loss was like 65% from the blackbirds and he lost sunflowers as a rotation crop and you know I was asking him about this because I, I asked him the question so Fred 3100 acre organic farm in North Dakota I mean this is not small time farming this is not backyard gardening right this is big time farming what's the single most important practice when you transition that farm, which had been his father's farm, when you transition that farm to organic, what was the most single important practice that you put into place? And he, without missing a beat, just crop rotation. Mm. We needed a more complex crop rotation in order for us to manage nutrients, manage pests, manage weeds, and also get the economic benefit of, of that diversity. And so, you know, it just broke my heart when I'm hearing these stories about number, you know, first of all, they lose sunflowers as a crop because of farm policy. And then he uses, he loses canola seed as a crop because of the um, expansion of GMO canola in the area uh, because the, um, you know, as, as long as soon as any of the canola seed got contaminated, with the GMO pollen from other canola that, that other neighbors were growing, canola was no longer certified organic, and he lost his market for it. So, you know, it, it kind of breaks your heart when you see that somebody who has figured out how to do this, keeping yields up, economically viable. I mean, he's hitting every principle of a, you know, redesigned food system, diversity, ecological integrity, economic viability. It just breaks your heart when he starts losing some of those foundational aspects, foundational features of a good, you know, fair food system because of institutional policy or farm federal policy, public policy. We just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to make sure that we end on policy. And I'm going to basically open the, open the floor up to you with two minutes. What do you want our listeners to know about farm policy? The first thing I would like our listeners to know is that the single most important step all of us can take is to make the transition from conscious consumer to engaged citizen. That while we can make some difference in our own personal food choices, we are never going to change the food system unless we also at the same time address change in institutional and public policy. So I would encourage all of our listeners to get engaged, to get engaged to understand what the farm bill is, to learn about the organizations that are working in different aspects of the Farm Bill, and for those who have the ability and the interest to engage with our elected representatives and their staff people to really get as many voices as possible into this discussion to create a fair food system through fair farm policy. I think that's marvelous advice, and I just want to let our listeners know that your book, Fair Food, Growing a Healthy, Sustainable Food System for All, is loaded with information about how to engage as citizens, a whole section on resources, and a very good piece of advice, which is 
don't do this by yourself. Join with others. There are organizations out there who you can become a part of to really win this effort to create a fair food system. Dr. Hesterman, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. You have been enlightening. I wish we had another couple of hours to speak. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners, and I want to thank you, Dr. Hesterman, for writing this book. Melinda, it is my pleasure to be with you, and you are welcome. Thank you. To learn more, go to www.fairfoodnetwork.org. 